This is Pace the Nation. everybody for being here this is what we're going to do we're going to do a uh, chapter by allison and then we're going to do a live broadcast on our pace nation youtube channel we'll also have it on run pacers instagram uh with a, a discussion followed by a question and answer so with that allison desir all right hello hello I am going to read from chapter 11, Meaning Through Movement, so you can open your pages to <laughs> page 121 <laughs> if you'd like to read along. Here's a space I never imagined I'd be. In a rented van filled with the stink of five runners inching down a road in the pitch of night. Two people were wearing headlamps, two people wearing headlamps ran down the road. The three others slumped in the seats, knocked out, or trying to be anyway. We were 67 miles north of Philly, but we could have been anywhere. From my seat in the van, all I could see was the 15 feet of road our headlights illuminated in front of us and the bouncing reflection of our two runners. I was up next, so I tried to sleep. I adjusted the pillow between my head and the window and closed my eyes, but sleep didn't come. I was too tired, too excited, my mind filled with the women I was running for. We'd only run 35 miles. We had 215 to go. After the 2016 election, I found myself thinking a lot about the future of the country and about the ways in which the forces of racism and sexism play out both on a national scale and on a personal one. Since founding Harlem Run, the sexism I'd experienced in the running community had been painful and disheartening. Because I chose to manage Harlem Run in my own way, without bowing to the preferences of the black and Latinx male crew founders in the city, and perhaps because of my overwhelming success and media coverage of Harlem Run and me, they'd shunned me. I had imagined they'd be proud to have a black woman emerge in a sea of only male leaders in New York and collaborate to bring more of us into the fold. But it seemed the lure of dominance or maybe jealousy was too great. When the groups collaborated on events, the men left Harlem Run and me out. The leader trash talked us on social media and in person to anyone who would listen, saying things like, Harlem Run is a bunch of college kids, we don't fuck with them. Language intended to somehow make us appear less cool and create division. In many ways, the man entering the White House operated in the same manner, name calling those who didn't agree with him or follow in line with his bidding, stoking division to gain power. It was terrifying to imagine that this person would set the agenda for our nation for the immediate future. His mindset was win at all costs, and he pushed a nationalist, read white, cisgendered, able-bodied, Christian male agenda. I was frightened for my people. His laws and policies would further marginalize those already marginalized, including black people, the LGBTQI plus community, undocumented people, indigenous people, and women. 
I have to pause for a second. When I, I'm catching like an error in this, I'm like, why did including have a couple I? <laughs> so bear with me. <laughs> like, I got to get back to my editor on that one. Um. <laughs> The incoming administration was already discussing rolling back reproductive rights. Any cuts in funding and changes to reproductive rights would disproportionately affect women of color. Where rights and access are concerned, we're the first to be negatively impacted and the last to be considered. Our agency over our bodies was on the line. On the line. All of this was on my mind in December 2016 when Amir and I had a long conversation with a friend of his who worked at the White House during the Obama administration and his partner who we'd gotten to know. I told them about my work with Harlem Run, how it was a political act in the sense of claiming space, advocating for our community, and centering the experiences of black people and other people of color. Amir's friend was enthusiastic as he believed communities like Harlem Run were deeply important in the larger political theater. He also emphasized how damaging the new administration's policies would be, particularly to people in neighborhoods like Harlem. You have a powerful voice and a powerful community, he said. You could really do something impactful using movement. My mind jumped to the history of movement as protest, to Martin Luther King Jr.'s civil rights marches. More than 200,000 demonstrators rallied together in the March on Washington in 1963 to demand equality. In 1965, thousands joined the 54-mile walk from Selma to Montgomery over a five-day period, with 25,000 people walking the final leg to the Alabama State Capitol. These collective actions reminded me of the power we have when we speak with one voice to demand the rights we deserve. How could I use running in the same way? Our friend brought up the Women's March planned for January 21st, 2017, the day after the inauguration, which was shaping up to be one of the largest marches of our time. His partner added, you could run there? Amir and I looked at each other. My mind was already racing, thinking about the way the endeavor would bring together all these threads, movement, protests, running, and community. After turning it over for a couple of hours, I asked Amir what he thought about me running solo from Harlem to Washington, D.C., not just to do it, but as a fundraiser for Planned Parenthood, time to arrive the morning of the Women's March. Oh yeah, he said in his understated way, implying this was a foregone conclusion. <laughs> I'll drive alongside you. I pulled out my phone and calculated the distance, 250 miles. Would it be possible for me to complete the mileage by myself? I had done one ultramarathon in celebration of my 31st birthday, and I was in the best shape of my life, but I knew that many miles, even if spread out over the course of a week, would be painful at best. So I called Talisa Hayes, a pace group leader for Harlem Run, and the only ultra runner I knew, and threw out the idea of a relay to her. She's a ride or die kind of person, and after we hung up, she emailed me within minutes. I'm in. It was exciting, but was it possible? We decided we'd add two more runners to make the distance manageable, and I created a GoFundMe page, for women, run for all women, trusting that the logistics would work out and we'd find two other women to join us. I posted the link on Instagram and Facebook. 24 hours later, more than 1,000 people had visited the GoFundMe page and we'd raised $1,000. Everything accelerated after that. I received DMs from Kim Rodriguez, runner and fashionista, Kita Francique, a well-known runner, community builder, and high school teacher. And just like that, our team of four was complete. 
Planned Parenthood CEO tweeted about our effort and the organizers of the Women's March said they were pumped for our participation. More than 100 women want, reached out wanting to take part in the run. Like me, they were worried about the rollback of reproductive rights, particularly because we'd learned the new administration would likely withhold federal funding from Planned Parenthood, making our effort more urgent, both in dollars and in principle. My friend Mary, who gave me the Harlem Run domain, jumped on logistics and created a spreadsheet that broke down the run into four mile segments with times and locations so people could sign up to join us. Eight days into our fundraising, we, eight days into our fundraising, we went viral. We broke my initial fundraising goal of $44,000 in honor of Barack Obama, our 44th president, with donations coming in from people around the world. Our sign-up sheet was so full, we told people not to worry about signing up and to just show up. They could follow us on Twitter and Instagram for location updates. I started fielding calls from news outlets in Canada, Ireland, and Australia. Stories ran online on Glamour, The Cut, Bustle, Essence, and more, all linking to the GoFundMe page, all discussing the threat to women and our desire to raise awareness and money for Plant Parenthood. It felt bananas, but mostly surreal to stand on the corner of 145th and Lenox in Harlem on Wednesday, January 18th, 2017, two days before the inauguration and three days before the Women's March, surrounded by 200 supporters ready to run the first four miles with us. NBC, ABC, and CNN had their cameras rolling. I wondered if this, was, if this is what it was like to be a professional runner on the starting line of a big city race, all eyes on you, and anticipation riding on your performance. I disassociated a bit in order to manage the magnitude of what I was responsible for. It seemed at times that I was watching the action rather than living it. A little before 6 p.m. our start time, I stood to address the crowd. A couple of days earlier, I'd spent time reflecting on why the run was important, and I shared that in my speech. I began by acknowledging that it was easy to turn on the news and fall into despair. I heard it said that if you want to become depressed, you should just turn on CNN. My own concern about the state of our country was compounded by the loss of my father and how helpless I'd felt in the face of his disease. What I'd learned, I told the crowd, was that I could focus on the helplessness or I could recognize that I could in fact do something. We are not powerless in the face of injustice. There is always something you can do. I didn't have lots of money, political power, or tons of followers on social media, but what I did have was running shoes, two feet to put them on, and enough passion and drive to organize. It was a basketball coach, John Wooden, who said, don't let what you cannot do interfere with what you can do. And then we were off. And I'm gonna pause there. <laughs> a fantastic tease. Uh, and for those watching at home on Instagrams, Run Pacers, uh, and for those on Pace the Nation YouTube, thank you for joining us. And of course, everybody here at Georgetown, we're at 1079 Wisconsin Avenue. Is that right? 1079 Wisconsin Avenue, our new location in Georgetown, just to plug for that real quick. Thank you guys so much for the, in, 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 uh, the audience who is here. We're here with Allison Mariella Desir. She is a disruptor this is from your uh this is from your linkedin disruptor disruptor that's the first thing that's my job yes <laughs> author and co-chair of the running industry diversity Co coalition 
uh, author of, as we all hear uh, to see, author of Running Wild Black, Finding Freedom in a Sport That Wasn't Built for Us. Uh, you can get the book here tonight if you're here, and you can get it wherever books are sold. Audiobook version is awesome for runs. I can attest to it. Uh, really excited to have you here. So we're going to just do about a 20-minute conversation if, I, if, if, if we could, and then we're going to get some question and answer. Uh, first off, I want to thank you. I want to thank you. You were on our podcast about two years ago, and you opened my eyes to what white supremacy really is. So I want to thank you, and I'm in the book. I don't know if that's good or not. <laughs> I was going to read from that. No, 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 we don't need it. But, um, but I did listen to your book, and over the last uh, couple of days, plowed through it, amazing work, inspiring. I, I told Kathy and Julie, like, it was inspiring. Congratulations. Why a book? And who's this book for? I think I know the answer, but who's this book for? Why a book? So all my life, I have wanted to write books. Uh, when I was little, my mom, when I was four, my mom was getting her dissertation or writing her dissertation and getting her PhD in anthropology. And she was sitting in front of a typewriter, okay, <laughs> 1989. Um, and I would carry around a little notebook with me and like sit there and, and be typing too. So I always, I always wanted to be a storyteller. But the idea for this book really came after the murder of Ahmad Arbery. My son at that point was 10 months old. And um, I realized that this could be my son's destiny, right? That my son was no different than Ahmad Arbery. And that um, also thinking just how selfish it was to have a black child in the world that we live in. And I published this op-ed in Outside Magazine where I drew attention to the racial divide that has always existed in running, uh, the fact that um, running clubs and crews um, largely exist along racial lines, um, and that my freedom of movement is really connected to historical um, historical practice, historical and present practices that that keep black people from moving freely through space. Um, I got so many emails, good and bad. <laughs> from folks, black folks, other marginalized people saying, thank you for saying the thing that needs to be said. Um, white people saying, I never realized that this could be the experience of somebody running the thing that I love so much. And I realized in that moment that I needed to tell the story, right? Because there are no books out there like this book. Um, there are no shortage of running books, but there are very few written by um, black people, let alone black women, and none of which tell the story of the joy, but also the fear that comes from running. Um, and who's it for? I mean, it really, it's its for everyone, right? When I was walk, talking to my editor, they were like, no, but you need to be more specific because- <laughs> Who's your muse? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And my friend here used to work in publishing. Of course. Um, shout out to Giselle. We've known each other for a bajillion years. Um, and so, yeah, my editor was like, we need to be a little more uh, focused and narrow. But, um, you know, I think it's, it's, for, it's for black folks, marginalized folks to see themselves in this, to feel a sense of validation that you're not alone. And it's for white people to- um, gain some empathy and understanding, um, and then to take intentional action, right? Because this is, the issues of white supremacy are not ones that um, we as marginalized folks can manage alone. Um, and we need all hands on deck when in fact, all of us are harmed by white supremacy, right? So I hope people leave uh, feeling inspired as you are. And you're super vulnerable in the book. Congratulations, hard to do. You put yourself out there. And 
you know, I got the sense that running truly saved your life. I would not be here if it weren't for running. Honestly, I was, uh, you know, I'll say trigger warning, but I was in a place where I didn't, I didn't necessarily want to kill myself, but I wanted to sleep until life got good right? Whatever that meant. So I was drinking, I was stealing from my mom, she had Xanax, and I was taking, you know, just 20, 30 at a time, uh, waking up sometimes two, three days later. And if it hadn't been for seeing my friend, um, talk about representation matters, right? Um, my friend, a black guy who you can actually see him on, on social media, I have it pinned. Um, he was at my launch party. If I hadn't seen him running, and con if I hadn't connected to his story, I would not be here. There's only so many times you can do that to your body um, and, and still wake up. So it, you, you, you chronicle your journey uh, of, as a runner and early on you trained for the rock and roll San Diego marathon. Um, talk about uh, something that I really took away. You said, focus on what you can control, stay in the present life has meaning. And I felt from that point in the book, you really turn it around. Can you talk about those three things? Focus on what you control, stay in the present, life has meaning. Yeah. I mean, I was coming from a space, like I said, where um, every, my world felt completely beyond my control, right? Like I couldn't find a job. My father had Lewy body dementia and he was unable to speak. I was changing his diaper. Um, it felt like I was helpless and like the world was happening to me and I didn't have any sense of control. And what running showed me was that I could, um, I could say that I was going to run a mile and I was in charge, right? I could decide that I was going to do that as a fast mile and um, then I could push myself. I was getting feedback from my body that I was so unused to. I was used to literally like being asleep and feeling numb. And suddenly um, I would do a workout and like feel in my quads like, oh my gosh, I have like a muscle there, right? And get sore. And um, if I breathe, if I was breathing like this, that meant that I was hitting this pace. And it just became this powerful recognition that I was in control of something and that person was me and I was more powerful than I ever knew. And that if I could stay focused on what was happening right now, not what was happening to me prior, not what the future was, if I could stay in the moment and really relish in that, um, that I would be okay. And that was such a powerful, right? You know, I didn't get better over overnight and I still take antidepressants and um, depression and anxiety is still something that I grapple with, but I suddenly had the tools uh, to take care of myself. And again, the book is Running While Black. Get it wherever books are sold uh, for those of you watching at home. Um, you know, I, uh, I think I first realized who you were in the chapter you just read when you ran from Harlem to DC and raised all the money for Planned Parenthood. But really your journey started to be this influential person in the space with, I see a shirt right there, Harlem uh -huh. Run. So tell me about Harlem Run. That was a total accident. Um, so after running my first marathon, the San Diego Rock and Roll Marathon, raising over $5,000 for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, I realized that I was hooked, right? That running, it was not going to be a one and done thing. And more than that, I wanted other people to experience the transformational power I had. Uh, throughout my journey, I had not seen um, a team in training. I was one of the only white, I was one of the only black people there. Wow. Freudian slip. Uh, <laughs> never said that before. Well, you talk about you talk about that you had white supremacy in this book. Yeah, yeah, no, I do, and yeah, we'll do that. I do talk about how 
all of us consume yes. these ideas of white supremacy, right? So the way that I saw myself, I saw myself as ugly, as stupid, as um, worthless. All of those things were because I was comparing myself to this ideal um, of what it meant to be worthy. Um, and, and all that comes from white supremacy. It doesn't serve any of us. Um, but I, you know, I started Harlem Run because I wanted to share the experience with other black people. And I, you know, God bless me. I believed that people out there wanted to join me. You grinded. Yeah, for six months. It was the loneliest six months of my life. You and the OG, and that was really it. Yeah, exactly. Me and the OG, Krista. Um, it was so painful to show up and like be excited, ready to greet people. And like I sometimes I would see somebody walking by in running shoes and I'd be like, ha! and then they were just like going to the train. <laughs> Um, but now, I mean, it's incredible to see how far Harlem Run has gone. Um, we have people coming from all over the country. We have a leadership team that leads Harlem Run in my absence. Um, you just, my, my, there's many things I've learned in this life, but a key one is that you never know the impact that you're making and who's watching. Um, and it's just been a beautiful journey. So you obviously got roots, big time roots in New York. You're in Seattle now. I'll talk about that in a, in, in a minute, but 2015 New York City Marathon, I felt like was one of one of the most inspiring stories. I was actually making it about me here. I shouldn't be, but I was finishing what my run today. I was, <laughs> I know what else is doing. I was finishing my run today and she's like finishing the New York City Marathon going through Harlem. Yes. It was like, I was my fastest mile of the day. So thank you for that. You're um, but you said, you know, at, at that time when you finished that 2015, I think you had done the marathon before, but you said, at the t at this time, I thought I was creating a running group, but I realized I was creating my purpose. Yes. Expand on that for me. Yeah, I think you know all of us have our you know we spend so much of our life thinking about like what's my job going to be and like how am I going to make money and that's you know our parents push us to that, but um, there's less of an emphasis on what is your purpose in this world, right? And I realized through running that marathon, seeing community on the streets. Um, seeing how much joy people were experiencing and what I had built, I realized this is why I'm on this earth. I'm here to build community, to get people excited about movement, taking care of themselves, about um, showing people that you can make an impact no matter how big and how small. And I still had to grapple with how would I make money because man, I got student loans. I was paying for my life with student loans. Buy my books, so I can pay my loans. Um, <laughs> but I knew that no matter what, this is why this is why I'm here. I'm here to share this wealth of knowledge and um, get everybody hyped about the power of a run. And I start, you know, I, when I read your LinkedIn, you started with Disruptor. So I want to get to that because that's a big part of the book. Mm -hmm. um, you, you make people may be uncomfortable <laughs> just a little yeah i, mean, I actually i like i love that we're here like this yeah i, remember I saw julie where's julie yeah, yeah. Uh, we were at empower run um and i i didn't realize that was your wife at first oh. <laughs> sorry yeah no and i think i was talking about you um but then when I then I was like, oh, I should probably share with this man like what I'm saying in the book. And your response was great. You were like, say, you know, say whatever you yeah. need to say exactly what happened, because it was a catalyst moment for you. And I think it serves that purpose in the book. 
Um, but yes, I do make people uncomfortable. I think as you read the book, you'll see I share a lot of anecdotes from when I was little. And the biggest, one of the biggest impacts on my life was my father, who never missed an opportunity to talk about the Haitian Revolution. Mm -hmm. um, the Haitian Revolution, my father, according to my father and myself, is the most important uh, moment in history. Um, but I remember being in school and learning about the Louisiana Purchase and never learning about the Haitian Revolution. Um, and my father just instilled in me two things. Um, one, the importance of this moment, but two, that what you learn in history books is not fact, right? History is just written by those who are in power. And it is your uh, responsibility to get to the truth and then share it. And you see in my childhood and in my high school and middle school, the ways that I started to hone in on that. Um, and now it's just a second nature. Sometimes I don't even know something is disruptive until I see somebody's face and I'm like, oh. They're, they're squirming. I did it again. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, I think it's just a powerful tool. You'll never wonder how I feel about you. <laughs> and um, those, those, those risks, those moments where I am saying something disruptive um, have led to such meaningful change. And I, I envy that. I, I, I'm a pleaser. I want everybody to like me. And not that everybody does like you, but you go, you, you go hard. You go hard <laughs> yeah. at, let, let me give you an example. And again, just a little teaser for the book. You go hard at the BAA. You go hard at the Boston Marathon. Oh my God, I'm going to Boston next week. I'm like, a yeah, little, I'm a little You afraid. go hard. <laughs> like, I wouldn't have gone there. No, it's been, listen, it's wild. I, I go hard at Runner's World. I had an interview with them. I go hard at New York Roadrunners. I was there last night. I'm like, could I be three for three? Will the BAA actually welcome me? But I mean, here's the thing. I honestly, I'm not the only person to feel this way, right? And um, I think it's important that the BAA look critically at themselves. There's several things that I mentioned. Um, I want to talk about the timeline at the beginning of the book, and the mm -hmm. BAA is mentioned in that. I, the timeline. Um, so if you if you open to the beginning of the yep. book, and we start there with um, a timeline that's called Freedom of Movement. On one side, you have U.S. running history. On the other side, you have Black people's reality, and you see that one of the first dates, or the first date in U.S. running history, is 1887. The BAA is established. Right, 1897. The BAA holds the Boston, the first Boston Marathon. Well, do you know what was happening in black people's reality? 1896 is when the Supreme Court um, issued the Plessy versus Ferguson decision, which led to institutionalized racism, segregation, right? So you're thinking about, in my mind, I start to think about, well, the BAA has, has never uh, been vocal about the conditions that black people have had to endure while also attempting to run their race, right? And this race that's supposedly the pinnacle of our sport, our sport that's about getting everybody moving and that's so democratic, you can only get into if you qualify or can raise $10,000, right? Like there is absolutely a mismatch between what the organization is saying and what the organization is doing. And furthermore, the race starts in the tiniest white place, goes through all tiny white towns, and then is in Boston for 0.5 seconds, right? So I just thought these, the cognitive dissonance here is so glaring. Um, hopefully in this, they read this, and they grapple with it. And there's an opportunity to rethink what the Boston Marathon is. I'm not saying like burn it all down. I'm saying, okay, this let's let's talk about this. Let's let how can we make the Boston Marathon something that we're all proud of, something that truly is a pinnacle experience of our sport. 
but will they be nice to me next week? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Again, the book is, you got to go get the book. If you're watching at home, it's running wild black. Um, I plowed through an amazing read, amazing audio book. Um, I, I'm going to, I'm going to get back to one more hard question. Then we're going to get to, uh, not hard, nothing's hard for you. I'm going to get, I'm going to get back to, uh, Bring just some, home. some other, I'm going to take it a little bit lighter here and then we're going to get to some questions from the audience. Um, I, I feel like the last two days I've been hearing your voice over and over, over the eight hour book that you read. How do you, how does one go about recording an audiobook? It's so wild. Well, first of all, the reason, I mean, I knew I wanted to do it, but on top of that, my publisher said, you can record it or we can get somebody else to record it. If you record it, you get $5,000. I was like, excuse me, <laughs> I am recording my audiobook. <laughs> but you know, what's funny. Like, I don't know about you all, but, um, all of these ideas that I, all these white supremacist ideas that I've consumed my whole life, I thought that I hated my voice, right? I thought my voice is so terrible, it's so weird. I hate listening to my voice on the voice when I'm leaving a voicemail. And then I went into the studio and I was like, my voice is beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> it was just so fun because I got to, um, I got to play around. When you listen to it, I'm like making voices and stuff. And it was such a, a powerful moment for me to confront this fear of mine, of hearing my voice, of having people hear my voice and recognizing that there's absolutely nothing wrong with my voice or anybody else's voice. And where did I first hear this message? Where did I first learn that I was supposed to hate this thing about myself? Um, but yeah, you know, you go to the studio for four days. Um, it's you, a producer, and you just have your book in front of you. And there were moments in reading the book, particularly the chapter Life and Death, uh, where I was crying reading it. You know, there's something it lands differently from when you read it and the words are in your head than when you read it aloud. And um, while that was painful, it also let me know that other people will deeply connect with this message. All right, I, I, got, I got one more hard hitting because I'm a hard hitting journalist here. Um, so you talk about in the book uh, a number of times about, you reference people of color being marginalized. Um, and I'm wondering sometimes if it's not white people being purposeful about that. Maybe it's just, you know. I don't understand. Yeah, I wonder sometimes if it's, you know, if, if they aren't meaning to marginalize. Mm. And it's just um, an accident. Let me give you an example. Mm -hmm. Okay, the Ted Corbett run. Mm. And uh, it's, a, it's a New York Roadrunners. And, and – Thank you for letting us know who Ted Corbett is. Yeah, amazing, I mean, amazing. Everybody... Yeah, and you'll get a, a great history lesson on him and many other folks. Um, so you reference that race, which is in December, no medal. And it is a race that is kind of on the back end of the calendar in a bad spot. Could it be just a mistake hmm. or was it them purposefully marginalizing Ted Corbett in this race? So I want to start by saying that whether it's intentional or not, the harm is done. That's one piece of it. And, you know, these things, if you look at it on a micro level, it can seem like a mistake. Like, oh, this one thing happened or this one thing happened. But what it is, is it's, it's systemic, right? When whiteness is centered, when white achievement is centered, when white people are centered, um, on purpose or not, they will get prime real estate 
right? Races. And look, I'm not somebody who chases medals, but I know for many people having a medal at a race is one of the reasons why they sign up. In New York, if it's not part of the nine plus one program, less people sign up, right? So whether it was intentional or not, putting this race at an inopportune moment just weeks after the New York City Marathon without a medal, it could be unconscious, but it's part of a system that doesn't value black people and what black people have done. Ted Gorbett is arguably one of the most important people in the history of long distance running. And for him to be overlooked in that way is part of a history of overlooking and erasing er erasing our achievements, right? And so that's often what, um, you know, when you're talking about issues of this, people want to say like, oh, but I'm a, I'm a good white person. I'm not a bad white person. And it's not a matter of good or bad. It's a matter of um, the, the, the power that you have, the, um, the ways that the system prioritizes you and sees you as the default and makes sure that your needs are catered to that you benefit from, right? And that's what I really hope to, to show in, throughout the book, but particularly in that chapter, that harm is harm. And when somebody tells you that they've been harmed, um, when there's a history of harm, all you do is get to work on how you can make a difference, right? You don't argue with, well, was it that bad? Or say, oh, I didn't mean it, right? That's immaterial. All right, we're gonna get to the audience question. Um, you're part of the, uh, you're, you're, you're part of the, I'm gonna get the name right, the Running Industry Diversity Coalition. How are we doing? How are we doing as a coalition? I'm amazed at the progress that has been made. We have an executive director, Kiara Smalls, who is just incredible. We um, hired two new people. I don't know their names because I'm sort of on sabbatical. Um, Kathy is on our board. Um, and what, you know, progress change takes time. But what's been really powerful is, um, for me, I think, looking at some of the things that Elise mentioned, right, um, how we share information about uh retaining, um, what's the word that I'm looking for? I'm tired uh, <laughs> of um, hiring and retention, yep. right? And I think that's something that the industry had never really considered, right? The fact that um, there are so few black and brown people working in retail stores, owning retail stores, in leadership teams of, of, of brands at the top of events, right? I think, I mean, I don't know how white people could not notice that they were the only ones in these places, but somehow they failed to notice. <laughs> um, so now with this awareness, looking at, well, what are the things that we're doing? What are the practices we have uh, that make our places of work unattractive to black and brown people? I always give the example of when I'm reading a job, well, I'll give two, when I'm reading a job description and I see something about must be professional, I'm like, okay, well, what does that mean for the way that I wear my hair, right? Because literally um, there are so many instances of, of black people having to change their hair, take out beads, put it up, do things in order to be presentable. The second piece um, that I'm always advocating for is putting salary requirements in job descriptions, mm -hmm. right? Because we already know that black women, Latinx women, um, indigenous women get paid less. And so if you're forced, you know, if you look at a job, there's no there's no pay in there and you're forced to share your job history, then you automatically will get less, right? Because you've always gotten less. Um, and these are, it, it's not radical to share the salary. Like they'll find out one day, <laughs> right? Um, but these are critical pieces that I've already seen result in um, a much more racially diverse job force. All right, last one for me, and then we're gonna get to the audience. You just mentioned being tired. It is exhausting. It's exhausting. It really is. And congratulations on this book tour and all you're doing. 
but it's exhausting. You reference in the book, maybe passing the baton. Are we there yet? Are you passing the baton? And who would take over for you? Come <laughs> Who's on. Who's ready? Who's ready? Yeah, seriously. Um, I mean, in, I'm passing the baton on a lot of things, which feels great. With the RIDC, I'm definitely, as the co-chair, I had to be the front-facing person, but that is now Kiara Smalls. It's wonderful that um, we have all these new board members who will continue to carry the weight. Um, as Ke uh, um, Keisha said, Kira, Keisha. Keisha said, with Run for All Women, there's a whole new leadership team. There's a Harlem Run leadership team. Um, I really, what I hope I can continue to do is um, sort of start little fires and sparks and then help leaders um, take it away from there. And then I can spend some time with my son. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's get some questions from the audience again. Uh, the book is Running While ba Black, Finding Freedom in a Sport That Wasn't Built for Us. Um, you guys got some questions? And can you do it on mic? Would that be okay? Questions, comments? Come on. I'm not the only one with questions. All right, here we go. In the front row. It's not a question, it's a comment. Um, I started the audio book because uh, I like to hear, I wanted to hear you say your words. And just three chapters in, I've said, oof, yes. And just, and just have felt so seen. So when you mm -hmm. said those comments about that was the reason you wrote it, it's 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 landing. It's landing a heart. So thank you for writing this book. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. Clap it up for that. I love it. Yes, thank you. Thank, All right. Thank way you. to start us off. Any other questions? I know you guys are here with some questions. Come on up if you would. I appreciate it being on mic. <laughs> All right. So um, I love that you started off with the history, mm. right? It's like the history that we've been taught that's been shoved down our throats that's part of the public education in America. Mm -hmm. And then you have your history, right? Mm -hmm. What's what's real for black folks, mm -hmm. what you've experienced. And so I love that you created this kind of parallel. Mm -hmm. um, but also because for me, just kind of um, metaphorically, it shows that uh, the division, really, mm -hmm. like the, the division on so many levels, mm -hmm. physically, you know, Jim Crow, financially, mm -hmm. all these things. I love that you included your parents in the mm -hmm. timeline. That mm -hmm. was really wonderful. Um, and that uh, you continue to weave their voice. You know, obviously we all have parents, but clearly um, the places that they came from shaped you as mm. a black woman that was different than an American black woman. Mm. Um, and basically, I mean, you are the person that you are today because of who your parents are. And Absolutely. I really love the line that you write here where there were, there were textbooks and then there was my father. Mm. <laughs> and yes. it's like such a simple... I mean, there's like seven, eight words mm. there. And I have not been able to forget that. Mm. And I love that it's such a powerful statement because you continue to bring your dad mm. back into the story. And I'm only a quarter of the way through. I'm trying to be slow with mm. this. Um, so I just wanted to, you know, bring that up because I think Thank that um, clearly your dad and your mother yeah. have impacted you. So maybe you can talk a little bit about mm -hmm. um, powder feet. Yeah, you know, I have to say that as I was living it, I didn't always love it. <laughs> because you asked my father one simple question and you'd be there for hours and it was never what was going to be on the test. <laughs> and um, But I now realize just how powerful what my parents are do were doing and how I hope I do it for my, my son, that they were creating a world in my home that would um, support my identity, right? That would let me know that I mattered that I uh, that my history mattered, that I came from people with history, um, because what I would learn in school 
would not at all elevate me or support me, right? As I mentioned, the Haitian Revolution wasn't taught in my school. Giselle and I went to middle school and high school, um, and it was not the kind of environment well, where, um, well, I was really uplifted for what I could do. I wasn't uplifted for who I was. So my parents just created this alternate universe where I was the, I and people like me were the most important people in the world. And I think about that with my son in terms of what's the artwork on the walls. All the artwork is um, by black and brown people. Um, you have given us so many beautiful books that center uh, black and brown people. And unfortunately, that's what we have to do, right? We have to create an education and a space for our children and our people because we will not get that kind of validation outside of our homes, right? Outside of our homes, the ideal remains white. The history remains um, sanitized. I actually had somebody last night who asked a question. He, he The way he framed it was, um, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X were diametrically opposed. Whose side are you on, right? And I was like, wow, you really have only read the history book that you were given in high school, right? Like, actually, they had a deep respect for each other. Their families remain friends. Um, and the two, you know, the reason why Martin Luther King Jr. was killed was because he was so dangerous, <laughs> right? Um, so it's just, unfortunately, fortunately, that's an additional burden that we all have to tell our stories. Um, you know this better than I do. Yeah. All right, who's up next? Come on, if you don't mind, come on up here. Come on I'd, love, down. I'd love for you to get in. The, I would love for you to get <laughs> on the microphone. Uh, the audience at home is still tuning in. And say your name. Hey, hey, everybody. I'm Jolly. Had a quick question. Um, I just wrote this up, but I'm sure there are a lot of discussions, thoughts, and events that are helpful within the book. You're traveling around in many different cities and meeting with many associations, many run running clubs, and all these different cities that you're traveling to. Uh, with this opportunity, will it be like an educational piece or workshop that mm -hmm. some other clubs and whatnot might be able to learn from while you're out traveling? Trying to give me more work. <laughs> no, that's a wonderful question. Somebody else asked, asked actually if there would be like an online forum. And I'd love to have such a place, but moderation, like having a moderator would be so critical in that, right? Because I wouldn't want it to turn into like a Reddit uh, environment. But um, next week, actually, um, on my website, you'll find um, uh, reading club questions that we put together. Um, and so the idea is those questions can be part of facilitating discussion. Um, after I finish this leg of my tour, um, my plan for the next year is to, um, you know, tour and host events that are more workshop based, right? Where we can dig in and grapple with the, with the issues where we can create brave spaces where people can test out new language and try out new ideas. So um, it's absolutely on my mind and I'm so glad we're on the same page. Good question. All right, any other questions from the audience? All right, we got a couple more, and then we're going to get her to maybe sign some books, yeah. and um, we'll have you come You come up here. Bergman County, New Jersey. There we go. Giselle in the house. Giselle, middle school, high school, no pressure. High school friends. Here we go. All the things. Um, but in your face. Um, so prior to reading this book, I had 
no knowledge of the the running industry mm. um you know how marathons worked and all that um but it was it was fascinating because i saw so many so much overlap mm. with um the erasure of, of history um certain marginalized groups in in industries across mm. you know um <clears throat> just like con across consumer brands and mm -hmm. um and so my question is in the wake of the racial reckoning um it felt as if everyone was kind of turning to each other and it's like what do we do how do we mm. fix this i had no idea this was happening like um and everyone started a, a dei organization mm. in, in their company two years later almost three years later we're kind of at the point where we're losing steam mm. <laughs> i feel like a lot of the these organizations are still being upheld by black brown marginalized people mm. I'm curious in within the running industry, do you feel like that is still the case? Mm. And what can um, white people do to kind of share in the burden? And, you know, we, we did that work two years ago. Right. We're, we're all good now. <laughs> right. Um, so I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. Great question. Well, one thing that's sort of tangential to that that always comes to mind, a friend of mine um, says, if you're speaking to a white audience, you're you're speaking to a shrinking crowd, right? Because demographics are shifting. So I like to think that whether white people want to get on board or not, if you want people, if you're looking for runners, if you're looking for people to buy stuff, like you got to figure out how to get us engaged. Um, that being said, I'm I'm hopeful, right? Like a, a lot of you, you know this from my book. I'm like, will the industry have the endurance to stick with this? Um, what I'm seeing is that white people are. Um, recognizing there was a period where white people were like, oh, I'm like listening and learning, you know what I mean? And it's like fucking catch up, <laughs> right? Um, so I'm seeing um, white people take chances, which um, for me, it's, I have to balance my like resentment and why is it taking you so long and how could, how could this man just have learned about white supremacy? Two years ago. <laughs> so I have to balance that feeling um, with the recognition that this is the pace that we're at, right? Um, but I am encouraged by white people entering um, spaces, like for example, Kathy entering the board where um, they will be the ones who are being vocal about the whiteness and the white supremacy in the industry, right? They are um, picking up the baton of measuring the accountability and um, the progress to these, all these DEI statements and stated goals from two years ago. So, you know, it's like it, the jury's still out, right? Um, I try to hedge my um, positivity, right? We, we just, we don't know, but I'm always going to be there to haunt people. <laughs> Bring it. <laughs> All right, we had one more question uh, from the audience. I think it was just one more. We got two more. Great, fantastic. Uh, we got three. Okay, awesome. You're gonna be here all night. All right, people are warming up. It's good. Uh, hi everyone. Uh, my name is Ross. I'm from Australia. We've just been traveling around the states for the last. You're few the weeks. person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hi. So. Uh, uh, we came over because I ran the Chicago Marathon a couple of weeks ago, which is my first marathon. Awesome. So, uh, not that this is about me, but it feels like your book has been following us around for the last <laughs> few weeks. So what I wanted to ask is um, my partner and I run with Front Runners, which mm. is an LGBTI uh, running group that we're all over the world. We run with the Melbourne chapter. Mm. 
Um, and I think what we do as an LGBTI club is give ourselves a bit of a free pass on stuff because we say we're LGBTI, we're inclusive, we're doing mm -hmm. this really well. But if I look really critically at my own club in Melbourne um, and the clubs we've run with here in the United States, mm -hmm. we're all men, <laughs> all we're white. all white, we're all middle-aged, mm -hmm. we're all me. How do we change this at the community club level and um, particularly picking up that stuff you're saying about, you know, the crews are all run by running bros and mm -hmm. how do we get away from that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for saying that because um, I... Uh... I've been, it's, I've been sort of grappling with this myself with uh, the Front Runners New York group. I love, one of my good friends is the president of Front Runners New York, um, but it is really just a white, cis, male dominated space. And I think part of it is um, honestly a, the fact, and I'm going to say these words and I hope they land the way that I intend. Um, that white gay men had, I know they continue to have, but were at one point the center of this struggle, right? Um, even though it was black trans women who were doing the work, um, but white gay men were, um, were really in fear for their lives all the time and being gay was, um, something that was, uh, at the center of a lot of the struggles and the movement. And I think that that's where a lot of white gay men stop their learning and their activism, right? Um, they, as, as a white male, um, the privilege that you have sort of has sort of like narrowed your focus. And, and I think that's just where the groups have stayed, you know? Um, I know that in New York, I mean, New York is one of the most racially diverse places um, in the world. And the fact that there are such few black people there are I don't know if there are any trans or non-binary people right but I think about like well what is the messaging right and what are the images that the club or crew are showing um because people even if you're not intentionally saying this is the standard of who shows up if all you're seeing is that then you know it's sort of it's a self-fulfilling uh, prophecy I think it's really important for your groups to make relationships with other clubs and crews I think um, you know, there are uh, LGBTQI plus people everywhere. Like, are you in community with those people? Are you attending their events? Um, are you establishing trust? Are you centering um, their stories and their experiences? When I think about what's happening to Black trans women, the way that um, they're being used as sort of a chess piece in um, in all these political conversations, are you vocal on your social media about your support and how fiercely you um, these people matter? You know what I mean? I think you have to throw your voice in it as if it were your own struggle. And you also have to celebrate these people too, right? Because we are more than our, than our struggles. So how are you celebrating and telling our stories? Um, but yeah, I think you know, Front Runners is now an institution since 1979, right? Um, arguably the most powerful running club in the world. And it's it's unfortunate that um, the club is where it is now, but there's, you know, there's hope if you if you really um, take intentional action. Good answer. All right, we got two more questions, at least two more. Come on up here. The book again is Running Wild Black, and if you're at home, buy it already. It's wherever books are sold. Yes. All right, next up. 
Um, thank you so much. My name is uh, Perzavia Prelo, and I just want to thank you for your um, book. And so just first a comment and then a question. And the comment is that it's just wonderful that um, in your embodiedness as a Black woman, that you're able to share your story of running while Black, um, being mindful of what that means and denotes. But I think the other side of the narrative is that while it can be dangerous of running while Black, well, there is privilege to running while white. And so I think that's part of the conversation that we've kind of skirted around um, in our conversation tonight. But I also see in your book a charge. I think it's important for people to hear your narrative, but the question around, I think the brother in the back raised it, well, what does it mean for running clubs to mm. um, then do the next step? Mm -hmm. And so um, in some ways, I think my question is, um, not only what is the charge, but then how do our white sisters and brothers in the room go beyond just reading your narrative, mm. but to create places of hospitality? I run with groups that actually just ran in Baltimore and I looked at the picture and it's everything you just described. Mm. And while I'm running, I'm not experiencing welcome and hospitality. Mm. So then the question becomes, how do we go beyond just reading the narrative? And that's important. And mm. so in some ways, helping people to not only understand their um, fragility and their whiteness, but then what becomes the their work, not just your work in educating others. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, thank well you. Yes. Um, you know, it's my hope that through this book that, you know, it's not, um, the book is not necessarily like instructional with like you do this, but there are absolutely lessons that white folks will glean from this no matter what place they are in the industry to take action, right? I think, um, you know, in, um, in, some of the early chapters I talk about my experience going to other running clubs and crews in the city. I'm going to tell you a secret that one of the groups I describe is front runners in New York, yeah. <laughs> um, where I met them in Central Park and they were like, okay, we're going on an easy one. They took off and I never saw them again. Um, but so I think stories like that can be instructional, right? Like, oh, what does it mean when we say everybody's welcome, but it doesn't actually mean that? Or um, talking about how intentional I was about posting certain images, using certain language, um, being intentional about where we were meeting, what time we were meeting, right? So I think that there are lessons that be, can be gleaned that way. Um, but I also think, you know, white people are often asking, like, what can I do? And it's like, it's not always our responsibility. You know what I mean? Um, like you, maybe not you personally, but your people built and maintain this system, right? So the same kind of thoughtful self-reflection that I do about um, what is white supremacy? How am I? How am I harmed by white supremacy? What does it mean? You know, thinking through my different identities. This is also work that I hope white folks realize they need to do. Um, as part of their own process, right? So, um, yeah, I think, you know, part two of this is is me continuing to facilitate these kinds of conversations and workshops, but white people are not helpless. <laughs> yeah, you do a great job making that point um, in, in the book, <laughs> which resonated with me. It was like, it's not my job. I was like, okay, all right, we're going to stay away from that. All right, uh, we had one more question here. We had two more questions. Awesome. No, no problem. Love it. Great questions. My question was actually very similar to that. So I'm just gonna make a comment. First of all, thank you for writing this. It feels like the book that I didn't realize that I needed until I found it. And I haven't started reading it yet, but it is our November project, November book club pick. Hey, so thank you, thank you, thank you. Most of my question is, so it's a, it's a book about running while black, mm -hmm. but I wonder how much of it is specific to being a black woman mm -hmm. who's running while mm -hmm. black. Mm -hmm. um, I've been running since middle school mm -hmm. and it is a very, 
white space, mm-hmm. but it is also a space where I feel really good mm-hmm. um, because I'm moving and mm-hmm. I feel good moving and I love running. So I'm curious what you think the difference is as a black woman um, about your experience and how much of this speaks to being black and a runner and a woman. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been getting this question a lot and I always say I cannot separate any of those things. I am always a black woman who's a runner. <laughs> so um, there is, I can't say that this is more because I'm a woman or more because I'm black. Um, I think that I was actually talking to somebody last night, a black man who said, thank you for writing this book because as a black man, he through reading the book, he recognized the privileges that he has, that he will go running at 10 o'clock at night right? And not think twice about it. Um, that he will, uh, he didn't say this, but I think about my my partner, he will go out on a hot summer day in the tiniest little shorts, no shirt, and just like living his best little thirst trap life. <laughs> and I'm covering myself up, right? So I can only, the experiences that I'm sharing are because I inhabit all of these identities at the same time. And so I tell that story, but then I also tell the story of um, the deep fear and then responsibility I have for protecting my husband and my son, right? Um, Because um, that's another piece of this that uh, black women, um, we are sort of our, we build the community, we're the center of our households, right? And, um, and then historically, you think about the ways that black women have been charged with taking care of men. I mean, that's a whole other conversation, right? But so there's just my husband feeling so free to go out at 10 o'clock at night and me being like, you could die. Like, why don't you understand that that's dangerous? Why, why is this a, a risk that you're willing to take? And that processing is part of what it means to be a black woman who's a runner, you know? All right, we got a couple more questions. Um, come on up. Uh, if you're not, uh, you can find her a lot of places. Instagram's great, Allison M. Desir on Instagram. So if you're not following her on Instagram, a lot of the information about everything she's doing is on there. All right, Keisha, question. Um, this work that you do is heavy and it's hard. Um, my biggest question for you is how do you keep your cup full? How mm. do you how do you maintain in in this space where people are always asking you for things? Mm. And, you know, you're you are now looked at as the face mm. to you know call people out mm. and to to do the hard work. So where do you find your joy? Where mm. do you find the things that help keep you energized, keep you going, so that you can you know be all that you need and want to be for your son and mm. your family? Great question. So there's two things that immediately come to mind. The first is that I moved to Washington State. <laughs> okay. I being in New York, I love New York. I miss so many people, but I needed to be out of the center of everything that was happening. It was just so consuming to know that there were like all these events, that there was even just showing up for a Monday night run at Harlem Run where there was going to be all of this. Um stimulation. I just could no longer take that. And um, you couple that with a pandemic and thinking about, I want to raise, I think, there we go. So that move was a big part of it. And it came also with its own set of dangers. Um, But that's just been so powerful for me. And um, living across from the street from a lake and going hiking and fly fishing and kayaking, all of that. The other piece is that I love also doing work behind the scenes in um, building people up, right? And in um, 
and that brings me a lot of joy because one, there's so much information that I've learned and I have a lot of experience and I don't think that information is meant to be hoarded, right? Although in the United States, that is what we're taught, that you're supposed to hoard the information and that that's your competitive advantage against somebody else, <laughs> right? Um, but I believe it's the opposite. Like what I learn, I want to share. And so I love being able to do that because then um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm giving the gifts that I have and I'm getting gifts back from that person. And I realized like, I'm not the only person, right? That's also like so egocentric to think that it has to be me. Although there is often the pressure of that when you get the media and the attention, it feels like you're the voice, but no, there are so many important voices. And if I can continue to work with those people and uplift them and I'm looking at you, Guarina, I saw Allison in here, right? Allison, are you still here? Yeah. Um, I, I often media reach out to me for things that I don't even know how to do. Like, I mean, yes, I have my coaching certification, but I'm always like, uh, why don't you talk to like a real coach like Allison or Keisha, right? Why don't you, you know, I'm not the only person. So doing that, one, it brings me a lot of joy, but it also helps spread the load. I think we have another question here. This, this mic is not working, so we're just going to use one mic, which is fine. All right, we had another question. Come on up here. I really appreciate it because we do have a number of people watching and listening at home. So you being on mic is helpful. Come on up. Thank you. Uh, my name is Lila and thank you so much, Allison, for coming tonight. Um, you, you wrote a little bit in your, or a lot in your book about um, kind of some of your experiences as a, a youth and a high schooler um, running on the track team and how uh, even just small things like your, I think your teacher, Mr. Anderson, kind of saying, join the track team. <laughs> um, and uh, so I guess I'm curious what kinds of conversations you're hoping will be sparked um, by this book on high school teams and sort of youth spaces where, um, you know, the the adults in the room have so much impact. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, to your point, right, that Mr. Anderson seeing something in me and inviting me into that space changed my world, right? So you think about the fact that black kids often get pushed into track and field and white kids get pushed into cross country. It's as simple as a cross country coach inviting black kids to run, right? Breaking the narrative that we belong in these spaces. I think another piece I was talking to coach a couple weeks ago um, where he got curious about why weren't other kids, what was stopping kids, right? Because we make a lot of assumptions about why they're not showing up. And he learned that for a lot of black kids, their parents couldn't uh, pick them up after school or whatever, after practice. And so he took it upon himself to create a carpool where he um, shuttles 10 kids home and therefore they're able to be part of the cross country team, right? So I think one thing is recognizing your power as a coach or as a teacher. You are these kids' worlds. And whether you see something in them or not, oftentimes it's not even, I mean, is it talent? Is it, you know, born with it, whatever. But it's just that that you see a spark in somebody can change their world. And then the other piece is getting curious and having conversations with kids and parents about, well, what is the obstacle, right? And once you know what that obstacle is, you can address it. But yeah, absolutely on the on the youth level, it, it just has so much to do with um, what opportunities kids see are available and whether they see themselves in those spaces. And we can change that. All right, I think we got time for one more. We got one more. And if not, that's okay too. I know that people want to get some books signed, buy some books. All right, well, I just want to take this opportunity to thank you 
I'm humbled, seriously humbled by the opportunity to get up there and get up here and talk to you in front of these great people. And I really appreciate the book allowing me to, you know, be uncomfortable at times and talk to you. So thank you. I really appreciate it. There's a lot of people who could probably have done this and for me to be able to do it, I'm humbled. So thank you. Um, and again, thank you for the audience on, uh, here, uh, for everybody listening on, uh, Instagram, we really appreciate the run pacers, Instagram, uh, people watching. And for those on pace nation, thank you very much. And Allison, uh, thank you. And anything else you would like to say before we sign off here? I, I want to thank Pacers again for the platform and opportunities like this. I said it before the run, but um, you know, me having this community and network is really everything for my book. And you know, the your books don't sell themselves, right? There's a lot of work that it takes from authors to sell books to set up these tour dates. And it was just an easy and obvious yes for Pacers to host me. So I appreciate you creating this space um, and continuing to. Um, yeah, take up the charge and get uncomfortable. All right. Thanks again to Allison M. DeSeer. The book is Running Wild Black. You can get it anywhere books are sold. Great stuff. Thank you for joining us. Run Pacers, Instagram, Pace the Nation, and we will see you next time.